Hi, my name is Yasmin Tarehi, and this is Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Today's episode is about the 12 keys to creativity and how to live a creative life with doctor and creativity coach, Eric Maisel. On today's show, we'll be featuring our guest, Eric Maisel. He's a retired family therapist and active creativity coach. He's the author of 50 books. Yes, I'm not kidding, 50 books. <laughs> and he's the developer of the philosophy of life known as Curism, which we'll hopefully get into. In 2021, Eric's books include Transformational Journaling for Coaches, Therapists and Clients, and Redesign Your Mind. Wow. Uh, that's incredible that you're able to publish that many books, Eric. Wow. Uh, so you obviously uh, walk your talk and you can also visit Dr. Maisel's website at www.ericmaisel.com. So without further ado, welcome Dr. Maisel, or, or can I just call you Eric? <laughs> Please call me Eric. Great to be here, Yasmin. Wonderful. So Eric, uh, I've read your books, I've listened to a lot of talks online, and I was incredibly inspired by the philosophy that you've created and the frameworks that you've created to inspire all of us to live a creative life. And so can you tell us right off the bat, what does it mean to live a creative life in your own words? Creativity means a number of different things, kind of depends on which territory or arena you're talking in. In in business, it typically means problem solving or innovation. So those are the two things that business most typically are interested in. But most self-identified creative and performing artists think of creativity as the same as manifesting potential, that idea from the human potential movement. It's the way we get to make use of our brains and our heart and our hands and our human resources. So creativity is really just sort of the word we use nowadays for manifesting potential. Mm. And uh, Eric, I want to hear about some of the emergent themes that have come out of your practice of being a creativity coach. Um, You know, I think that so many of us in the words of, I can't remember who said this, but we live, we are leading lives of quiet uh, desperation. Um, We're striving to become more creative. And I think so many of us don't have an outlet. So I'm wondering, like, what are some major themes that have come out of your creative coaching over the years, Uh, things that people, you know, kind of struggle with or have difficulty with time and time again? Well, let's sort of start at the beginning. I think that the creative person comes out of the womb already a little different from other people. Yes, of course, we can pay lip service to the idea that everybody's creative, but I do think that there's a subset of the population who pop out of the womb already stubborn and individualistic and look around and have the sense that they're going to have to make their own meaning their whole life long. There have been interesting studies that compare intelligent students as identified by teachers versus creative students as identified by teachers. And the main difference is that the intelligent students want to know what, what's on the test. What are they supposed to study? What's the conventional way to proceed in order to succeed? And the creative kids want to do their, they don't want to know what's on the test. They don't want to take the test. They don't want to be in school. They want to be doing their own thing. So right from the beginning, that person is an individual 
struggling to manifest her individuality and ultimately being a little oppositional because the world is not really wanting her to be the individual she wants to be. The world always wants us to fit in. So this person starts out falling in love with something. Often it's books or visual stimuli or music or film, that experience of being in a darkened theater that I grew up with. So the kid falls in love with, or it can be science, of course, or engineering, it could be anything. Child falls in love with something, doesn't quite realize that a seed is planted that's going to cause that person to want to write her own novels or do science herself. But those seeds are now planted because she's fallen in love with words or imagery or film or science or what have you. And then a time comes where she wants to do it herself. And then she has to face the rigors of the creative process. She has to face the rigors of spending two years writing a novel with all of those ups and downs, with no guarantees, and with the prospect that her first novel won't be any good. So that's part of the picture of this journey. It's the journey of someone who is born individualistic, who falls in love with something, and who then wants to ply in those fields herself and must face all of the rigors of what it means to both try to do the creative work and then try to sell the creative work, which of course is its own separate difficulty. Yeah, Eric, you know, it's interesting that reminds me of my own childhood because I loved film and movies and it took me so long to finally break from consensus reality and then pursue film and a more creative life. But I always had this like sense of wonder. Um, so I love that. I love that. And I recently took your course. Um, it's on Daily Ohm. It's uh, spelled O-M, Daily and then O-M, called The 12 Keys to Creativity. And I just thought it was fantastic. And I'd love to dive into The 12 Keys. Uh, I realize that this might take up a lot of time um, from the interview, but I think that this will be super helpful for the audience as they start to contemplate and think about uh, their own creative life. Sure. I'm happy to do that. And I think as much time as it takes, it's time well spent. First key to my mind, and these may be altered or different from when you took the daily home class because things shift as I think about things. So these may be a slightly altered list of 12 keys, but they're all keys. First key is the idea of daily practice, the idea of maintaining a daily creativity practice. It's an obvious enough thought, but what I've learned from coaching clients now for 30 plus years is that if you're a creative person and you skip two days or three days or four days, suddenly weeks, months, and years zip by, even decades. The danger is not losing a day. That's not a danger. The danger is losing huge chunks of time if you don't maintain a daily practice. This happens because we lose contact with the work. And because doing the work is harder than turning on the TV or checking our email one more time or doing all of the things we do all day long. So it's really important that folks institute a daily creativity practice. I like it to be a morning practice. I think it's wise if folks start their day making some meaning, doing something productive and important first thing. I think that influences how the day is going to go. So we can call it a morning 
daily creativity practice as a first key. Second key is um, managing anxiety. Anxiety threads through the creative process. It's there naturally. And it's there naturally for a whole variety of reasons, but let me just name two. One is that creating is really going into the unknown, going to a real unknown. We don't know what we know until we know it. We don't know our plot until we know our plot. We don't know what the theme of our music is going to be until we know it. So we have to sit there and be comfortable in not knowing, and we're not really that comfortable with not knowing, so we get anxious. But even more importantly, the creative process is making one choice after another. That's what creativity is. Send your character here, send your character there. Put the comma in, take the comma out. It's one choice after another. And choosing provokes anxiety. The act of choosing makes us anxious. Therefore, the creative process is going to make us anxious as we try to decide whether to put a little red here or a little green there, and so on. This means that the creative person really needs some anxiety management tools that work. Most creative folks do not have any that work. They have ineffective ones like drinking scotch. <laughs> we have lots of uh, <laughs> addicted creative folks, and they're using those substances or behaviors to soothe themselves and deal with the anxiety that threads through the process. We do not think that's a brilliant way to deal with that anxiety. So folks need better anxiety management strategies than that to deal with the anxiety that is coming. It's going to be there. I have about, uh, I think, 20 categories of anxiety management tools in a book of mine called Mastering Creative Anxiety. So there are lots of things to try, but the headline is really acquire one or two anxiety management strategies that work. Third key is really understanding and embracing process. This is going to go in one ear and out the other. The creative process just goes in one ear and out the other. But in fact, it is not so easy to embrace the creative process. We don't like the idea that we might spend two years working on a novel that never comes alive. But that's the creative process. The creative process is doing work with no guarantees and understanding that we're going to make mistakes and messes. We will. And here's a big headline that only a portion of our work is going to be any good. Who wants to hear that? I don't think there's been a creative person ever born who wants to hear that only a portion of their work is going to be any good. But that's the truth of the matter. How many of Bob Dylan's 2,000 songs are wonderful? 20 or 30 or 40? It's some percentage of the whole. I just saw the Dolly Parton documentary the other week, and I think she also has written about 2,000 songs. And how many hits has she had? 10, 20, 30? And we consider her um, very successful. <laughs> but still, maybe one-tenth of one percent of the songs that she's written were superb. That's the reality of process, that only some percentage of what we do is going to be any good. And we have to weather that reality. And what that means is that we're after a body of work. We have to do lots of work so that we get that percentage that is excellent. 
So there are lots of other features of process that folks actually do not like at all. But let me just put a period there and say that if we don't embrace process, if we fight against process, if we rail against process, then we're going to block and not want to do the work. We have to embrace the realities of process, including the fact that the thing that we're about to embark upon has no guarantee of succeeding. An awful lot of would-be creative folks are waiting for that guarantee. They're saying something to themselves like, I can't start my novel until I understand it better. Forgetting or not realizing that they will only understand it better by sitting there and sweating and thinking about it and being dazed and being unhappy and trying to write it. That's how they'll understand it better, not by walking through the park saying, I can't get started yet until I understand my novel better. Eric, can you give us an example in your own creative process in which, you know, you've written, what, 40 books? Um, More than 50. I'm not going to shortchange myself. (laughs) (laughs) More than 50. Apologies. So you've you've written, obviously, 50 books. Were were there some books that you wrote that you just, like, have you written a hundred books <laughs> that didn't make it or that that's a, that's a smart question to ask. I would say probably 70 to get 50 or maybe 75 to get 50. So that's a very high percentage. I'm proud of that percentage, but still I have dozens of books that for one reason or another didn't work. And let me give you some of the different reasons why they haven't worked because there are a variety of reasons why things don't work. A couple of books that I wrote were ultimately cruel, crueler than I am. I have my wife read certain kinds of books where I'm worried that the tone is wrong or that I'm being a meaner or more ironic or more sarcastic person than I want to be. <laughs> and so I wrote a couple of books where she said, you know, you're just, this is the books are too cruel, so you can't don't send them out. (laughs) Don't get them published. So I didn't. Some other books were not available. And this is an interesting idea that most creative folks don't really understand. We may want to work on a subject, something we may have this burning desire to work on a subject, but it may not be available to us yet. Let me give you an example. Long time ago, 1995, I think, um, I was offered a book to write on meaning which is a subject that's always been of interest to me, probably from the age of five. I've been interested in meaning and life purpose. So I had this offer to write this book on meaning. I've got a very lovely advance for it, but I didn't know what I wanted to say. So I wrote a very goofy book. I turned out words. I turned out 60 or 70,000 words, and they were coherent. <laughs> they made sense. They, they got from the beginning of each sentence to the end of each sentence. They just weren't any good. And so the editor-in-chief there, I had just done a string of successful books with Tarcher, and we had this meeting, the editor-in-chief and I, and said, Eric, uh, this is an interesting book, but we can't possibly publish this. We don't know what this is. And she was she was absolutely right. Nowadays, whatever that is, 25 years later, I can write eloquently about meaning because I've learned some things, come to some understanding And the subject of meaning is now available to me, but it wasn't then. So that's another way in which a book can get written, but doesn't succeed. 
So I could I could go through <laughs> I could go through the twenty <laughs> or thirty books I've written that haven't worked. Each has its own reason for not. I, let me. I just want to tell one more anecdote. The first book I ever wrote um, was a picaresque novel. That's a novel of maturation about a uh, soldier in Korea. And it was essentially autobiographical. I had been a soldier in Korea. I'd enlisted in 1965 and got out of the army in 1968. And so I wrote that book. It was a first novel. So naturally, it had to be as bad as most first novels are, but had a lot of good bits. And I secured um, a literary agent who said to me, there just isn't enough incident in this book, please put in a kidnapping. She literally said that to me. Please put in a kidnapping. <laughs> <laughs> and me being the me of that 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 arrogant, narcissistic, grandiose twenty-five-year-old said, "Expletive deleted." <laughs> there's no there's no kidnapping going into this book. So there that book failed because I really was unwilling to do whatever the book required in terms of plot and incident. So each book has its own story. But uh, those are some of the headlines as to why some of some of these books haven't appeared in print. Wow. Well, that's very inspiring, Eric. Um, I think. I mean, first of all, I can't believe that you wrote that many books, but I think that we just assume that we need to have success right away in every endeavor. And I think just hearing like, yeah, you might write many books that don't make it, but you will eventually write books that do um, is powerful. Yeah. So. I, let, me, let me give you another example just while we're on this subject. Um, I don't remember the fellow's name, but the fellow who wrote... Um, Memoir of a Geisha, I think that's the title, Memoir of a Geisha. Started out, he spent two years writing it in the third person. The Geisha does this, the Geisha does that. So he invested a lot of time and energy in writing the book a certain way. Then of those two years, he read it and hated it. Dead as a doornail, the Geisha did not come alive. Most writers, unfortunately, would disparage themselves at that moment, they would say, I'm an idiot. Why did I think I could write about a geisha? I must have no talent. I'm not a real writer, etc., etc." That's how most writers stop themselves. This fellow said, hmm, I'm still interested in this subject. Let me spend another two years writing it in the first person to see if that might possibly work. And at the end of that process, he ended up with a bestseller. I'm just pausing for effect because it's not easy for us to really understand process and accept process. We turn it back on ourselves. If something hasn't worked out, we don't say, oh, process. We say, boy, I messed that up. How did I screw that up so badly? How could I have so little talent, etc." So this is a big headline. That process is what it is, and we should expect that a significant portion of the work we do isn't going to work, and that isn't a reflection on our talent. That's a statement about the reality of process. Wow, this is great. I am so inspired right now. You know, I, um, you know, personally have uh, 
a film writing uh, career and I have two scripts that I wrote features that got into the second round of the Sundance writing lab in the last two years, which is kind of insane. Like I'm literally like, these are the only two features that I've written. Um, I've written other shorts. Um, and I sort of said, okay, well, I'm going to put that. Before you go on, I want to say congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Well, now you may go. Okay. (laughs) I, you know, it's funny cause it got into the second round and it did not get into the final round. So of course, you know, in my mind, I'm like, well, you know, maybe they just weren't good enough. And, uh, I kind of just have sat back with, with them. I haven't really done anything with them. Um, but this, this conversation has inspired me to, to move things forward. They should be circulating again. And you've opened the door to a big point, which is everybody has an opinion. Mm. If if our work is not wanted by X person, all that all that means is that X person didn't want it, not that the work isn't good. Mm. And most would-be creative folks or beginning creative folks or creative folks at any stage in their careers are overly impressed by marketplace players and what they have to say. If an agent says something, if an editor says something, the writer is going to take that seriously. He or she really shouldn't. He or she should really return to his or her own opinion of the work. I'll give you a quick example. I wanted to do a book called Life Purpose Boot Camp. I wanted that title for specific reasons. I wanted to use the boot camp metaphor because I'd actually been a drill instructor in boot camp and I knew some things. And so I presented that to my first liter agent that I typically have two or three liter agents because if one liter agent isn't interested in a book, I'm certainly not going to stop trying to sell it. So I then go on to the next agent. So I submitted this idea to agent number one. We'll we'll call her Janet since that's her name. (laughs) And uh, Janet said, Eric, everything's a boot camp. This, this is so boring. I can't believe that you, that you're, coming up with a title that is is so inane, Eric. Now, most writers are actually going to be affected by that response. They're going to say, God, what a stupid title. And why why did I ever, and oh my God, and what do I do now? Not me. I immediately went on to agent number two, Jeff. And got an email back from Jeff in no time saying, Eric, what a wonderful use of a contemporary metaphor. Can't wait to represent the book. And he sold it within a day or two or something. We really have to stay in our own shoes. That isn't to say that if, you know, 13 consecutive agents say, say, say the same thing about our book, maybe we better look at the book. But you have to picture how they're operating. They're looking at emails for one-tenth of a second, thousands of emails a day, making snap decisions and saying things idly, just idly. And then that costs us the next two years of our life as we try to redo our book based on their idle observation. Wow. Yeah, that's so powerful, Eric. I think so many people will resonate with that. And it's just so inspiring. I, and we're at the fourth key, right? This count. <laughs> good, good counting. Um, so um, the fourth key is a cognitive one. 
And I'm going to say this precisely because it matters how I say it. It's thinking thoughts that serve you. Everybody knows about negative thoughts and, and, and other ways of talking about thoughts, positive and negative. But this is a different idea because even true thoughts do not necessarily serve us to be thinking. I'll give you an example. You're a writer, you go onto Amazon and you see that there are 5,000 books in your field. And you say to yourself, wow, there are a lot of books. That is a completely true thought. There are a lot of books, but thinking that thought doesn't serve you. Thinking that thought is probably going to make you not want to write your book as you think about those other 5,000 books competing with your book and overwhelming your book. So we have to get very practiced at if we think a thought like, wow, 5,000 books in my subject, the next thing we need to think is, no, that's not a thought that serves me. I still want to do my book. And most people are not practiced at this. If they have a true thought, they think that they're obliged to countenance that thought since it's true. The two truest thoughts that we think nowadays that aren't serving us are, I'm tired and I'm busy. That's what people are thinking all day long. Usually the other way around. First, I'm busy and then I'm tired. And we have to do the work of disputing those true thoughts and say by saying something like, yeah, I'm busy. But I can carve out 15 minutes for my book. Or, yeah, I'm tired, but I've got the stamina for, for 20 minutes to work on my symphony. We have to dispute those true thoughts. Or else those true thoughts will win. And they will be, they will be the way that we sabotage ourselves and prevent ourselves from doing the work. I think I'll put a period on that one. We could spend a lot of time on thinking thoughts that serve, but uh, probably enough on that one. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, I think that for so many people, that feels very true. I'm too tired. I don't have time, I think is the big one. I just don't have time, you know? There's like so many other things to do in the morning. And I just want to say that I did start the process of early morning creativity and it has been game changing. And it's so interesting because the days that I do them feel very different than the days that I don't do them. So I have not yet made it consistent, although that's the next kind of plan for me. Um, but yeah, just being able to work on your art and creativity first thing in the morning and to not, you know, you, you, the thoughts don't creep up early in the morning, the, the resistant thoughts. So yeah, I, I love that. Um, well, you're actually lucky that they don't because they, they often do. In If you think about it, you wake up one place, but your work is another place <laughs> across the house. And often people recapitulate all their negativity as they cross the house, as they're making their coffee. Those thoughts that stop them are beginning to percolate in their head. So you're lucky that, that you don't have those thoughts. But a lot of people do, and they have to do this cognitive work even as they're trying to get to their creative work first thing. But let me say another thing about morning creativity practice. Kind of went without 
saying why that would be valuable. Well, you start your day that way. That makes sense that that would be valuable. But there are a couple of extra reasons why that's such a good idea. One reason is that if you turn to your creative work first thing, you get to make use of what I call your sleep thinking. That is the thinking that your brain has done during the night. Folks know a lot about dreaming. We dream in REM sleep, but most folks don't know the amount of thinking we do in non-REM sleep and deep sleep. And if you wake up a poet in deep sleep or a mathematician, the mathematician is going to be working on a math puzzle or the poet's going to be writing poetry. We think while we sleep. Well, if you turn to your creative work first thing each morning, you get to make use of that sleep thinking. If you go to bed the night before in a different way with a what I call a sleep thinking prompt, or you could just think of it as a kind of a wonder, sort of wondering inside your work, like, I wonder what John wants to say to Mary in chapter three, your brain will hold that conversation between John and Mary. Your brain will concoct that conversation while you're sleeping. And then when you wake up and turn to your writing, all you have to do is take dictation. The conversation will be there. That's a super valuable addition to your creative life to make use of your sleep thinking. So that's A. And then the B is, I'm not sure that we'll have time really to talk about the following, but by getting to your work first thing, you will have had the experience of making some meaning on that day. And the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you won't get depressed. This is this is a way to ward off existential sadness. Getting to our work first thing wards off existential sadness. If we try to live our life the other way around by saying, maybe I'll get to my work, maybe I'll get to my work. By the end of the day, A, we're too tired, for real, we're too tired. But B, we're also sad because we haven't gotten to our real work all day and we're disappointed. So this is a way to ward off that sadness by turning to our work first thing. We get to affirm life and live one of our life purposes first thing each day. And as you say, that makes the day feel different. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. I think that's a really powerful point for folks um, to recognize as they start to think about their own morning practice. Um, and Eric, for the sake of time, I know that uh, we're only on number five. <laughs> um, we're not going to get we're not going to get through all 12. <laughs> um, but yeah, I won't, I'm going to actually not, uh, just, I'm not going to share my own reactions. I'm just going to let you talk about them because I really want the audience to get all the 12 keys. So I'm just going to let you continue on and I'll be a bit more quiet. Yeah. I'll just give some quick headlines. I'm not going to try to do them in any, in any depth. Okay. The fifth idea is, and this is a big idea, to, to say this in a few words is hard, but it's the shift from the idea that there is a purpose to life, which I don't believe there is, to the idea that there are our life purpose choices, that there are life purposes, plural, that many things are important to us. And by getting a good sense of this understanding of life purposes, and by understanding that our creative life is one of those life purposes, that keeps us motivated, that helps us do our creative work. So there's a lot more to be said there about the relationship between the idea, the paradigm shift from life purpose to life purposes, and how that keeps us motivated. Folks will have to poke around in, in some of my books to get more information on that. 
Sixth is another super big topic, and that's that's the idea that there's another shift to be made from the 2,000-year-old metaphor of seeking meaning, that we're a seeker of meaning, that the, that meaning is out there somewhere at the top of a mountain or at some guru's feet, to the wiser understanding that we make meaning. Time to stop looking for meaning. We make our own meaning. It's a psychological experience of a certain sort, comma. But here's a big headline. Activities in the surface of meaning don't necessarily feel meaningful. That's kind of a mouthful, but let me unpack it a little bit. The 300 days we're sitting there writing our novel, on 200 of those days, it may not feel particularly meaningful to be sitting there. We may just be slogging along, hating our own sentences, etc. So we have to, instead of saying, wow, this doesn't feel very meaningful, which is a good way to block and stop writing, instead of saying that, we need to say, hmm, this is arduous. This is how process works. I'm not that happy here today, but I know that this is in the service of meaning. I understand that I'm living one of my life purposes by sitting here, and even though I'm not getting the experience of meaning from sitting here, I know that this is serving my meaning needs. Again, that's a big idea to say in just a couple of sentences, but hope that listeners will will be able to get it. Seventh idea is the idea about how difficult it is to complete things. Completing things is its own art form, its own discipline, its own devotion. Lots of creative folks get to the 95% place in their work and then turn to something else. And they tell themselves things like, well, let me let me let it marinate for six months over there in, in olive oil and, and see if it's a better product six months from now or something. They talk themselves out of completing because, and there are probably a dozen reasons why we don't like to complete things. Let me just hit a couple of headlines. Once we say it's done, then the selling process begins, and an awful lot of creative folks don't want to do the selling part. So by saying, well, it's not done yet, then they don't have to face literary agents or or gallery owners or other marketplace players. So let me just put a headline on that one without talking about it at too much, too much length, and that is, we should say to ourselves that we want to get things done sooner rather than later. Sooner rather than later should be one of our mantras because we have to be careful about leaving things incomplete. We can end up with piles and piles of incomplete things and a very deep sense of personal disappointment and dissatisfaction about all of those incomplete things. And unless we face this squarely, face the difficulty of completing squarely, we can spend a whole creative life doing lots of things to the 95% place, but not ever having things completely done. The eighth idea is that the time will come where we do need to show and sell things, and we'd have to spend tons of time, hours, <laughs> talking about what this challenge is or how to meet this challenge of the marketplace. For now, let me just announce that that's coming 
and that a creative person doesn't really have the full experience of making a thing until it's been out in the world, had its reception, had pushback and feedback and criticism and all of those things from the world. Let me just stop and I just want to tell one quick anecdote. Our younger daughter had uh, had her first book published some years ago and uh, called me up soon after it was soon after it came out and she said, Dad, I have haters. <laughs> <laughs> she was so excited to have haters because she had, she had learned these these lessons that I teach. You've got to accept that criticism, pushback, all of that is coming from the world. Just embrace that and let everybody have their opinions and let people hate it. You'll have lovers and you'll have haters. <laughs> yes, uh, I will also share my own story when I published my first book three month, three years ago um, called Product Marketing Debunked. And I just remember the first time I got, uh, I mean, I had great reviews, you know, and it's still selling today. Um, but the first time I got my bad review, I could not sleep for 20, I mean, it was like 24 hours of just stress and anxiety. And I felt it's just such a level of humiliation. And then, you know, then you wake up and you're like, okay, you know, there's a lot of critics, there's a lot of consumers, there's not a lot of people who are actually creating. Um, you know, and I think anyone who's actually finished a book knows how hard it is to actually finish it and get it out in the world. So, but I, I've had that, ex I think every person who is created is like terrified of that experience. And then when it happens, they have to deal with it. And then it, it didn't, you know, now that I have so much content, I've got this podcast, I've got the book, I've got like hundreds of articles online and, you know, a new show coming out. So I'm at this point, I'm like, you know what, this is kind of par for the course. <laughs> the people are going to love it. And then there are people who are going to, you know, have their own opinion and, and that's okay. And a lot of people are stopped by that criticism. It's a very sad thing. One that maybe they get you know, seven good reviews and one critical review, and that critical review stops them from working on books ever again or stops them from doing something ever again. It's sad, but it's true how deep that criticism can uh, hurt a person. Did a whole book on this called Toxic Criticism about things to do to try to, you know, build up your armament against that. But the main thing, I said this earlier, but I want to repeat it one more time. Everybody has an opinion. Just let that be. Let let that be acceptable. I I've been working in controversial areas, controversial areas of mental health and anti-religion and all kinds of places where I am bound to get pushback from the world. I have not replied to a criticism ever. <laughs> ever. I am not going down the rabbit hole of, of trying to explain to someone why they're completely wrong in their opinion about something I did. A, that person's got way more time than I do and is going <laughs> to dream up a response to my response. <laughs> and we could, we could stay in that rabbit hole forever. And it is unfortunate that many creative folks do kind of crave those dramas. They want to they engage in those fights. Because the fight is actually maybe easier than working on the next book. So we have to be careful not to engage with criticism, go down those rabbit holes. That's not a place to go. Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, I think that's like one of the biggest lessons for people that are creating. Cause I, I feel like of all the people I know who are writing books now, I think that the reason why they're not pushing it over the, the final 5% is because 
once it's out in the world, you then become, you know, subject to criticism and subject to opinions. And I think, especially Western culture, I think we've, we've created uh, a world where people, there's a lot of, at least in California, there's a lot of passive aggressiveness, um, you know, and so people don't necessarily hear like true opinions, um, or when it's done, it's done with so much anger and rage because there is no room for authenticity in my opinion. Um, so I think, yeah, I think we have a difficulty and I live, you know, I came from a middle, I come from a middle Eastern culture where we are very authentic, (laughs) you know? And so I think I've just dealt with like very high standards and also very, um, honest, transparent truths in my household and, and in my culture. So I, I, I think even, but even with my own, I would say resiliency, it has been, it has been very tough, you know, and I think it takes time to just like let things go. And, and, you know, it's not, I don't think it's easy, um, as a first time creator or not a first time creator, but a first time, I would say publisher, once you've actually published it into, into the world. Uh, absolutely. And, most creative folks are more harmed by criticism uh, than than they even thought they were going to be, that they really get stymied by this bit of criticism or pushback or feedback. So I think that's why we're talking about it sort of a number of times over, is that it's a big deal issue for creative folks, the issue of criticism, also the issue of safety. You know, it... What's the number one phobia in the world? I know you know, and it's public speaking. More people are afraid of public speaking than flying or spiders or bridges or snakes or whatever else you could name. How can it be so dangerous to get up and speak for two minutes at work? How can that feel so dangerous? But it does. For whatever reasons it does, it does not feel safe to get up. Well, If public speaking is the world's number one phobia, no wonder it's going to feel so unsafe to put your work out there. So I think it takes a lot of bravery, courage, devotion to your work to get it out there. Freud said, I don't don't know much about creative folks, but I do think that all blockage is self-censorship. And all blockage is not self-censorship, but he was on to something. And that is that we are monitoring ourselves very carefully as we work, and we are tempted to not put our truth out there for fear that our truth is going to bring repercussions, and it can. In some countries, it can cost you your life to speak the truth. So it's not silly to be worried about safety issues. That's not silly to be worried about that. But we have to we have to try to overcome that so that we do speak authentically and truthfully, or else we will be silenced. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so ninth key, Eric, is that where we're on? That's where we are. Um, the ninth idea is a simple idea, but, a, but an important idea, and that's the idea of creating in the middle of things, namely that there will never be a better or different or more special time to get your creating done. An awful lot of people, but teachers especially in a certain sense, because the way that teaching is set up with nine months of work and then the summer vacation, teachers often say to themselves, I'll work on my book in the summer. This is not the right moment to work on my book. This is the school year. I'll I'll work on it in the summer. And they virtually never get to their book in the summer because they don't have any muscles built for their book. 
So it's much better to get to your book for five minutes today than to dream of having whole, beautiful, complete, empty days three months from now to work on your book, because you're not going to work on your book when those free days come. You're probably going to take a nap from being so disappointed from not having worked on your book all those other days. So to repeat that headline, we need to do our work right here in the middle of things. And one of the middle, one of the things we are in the middle of is our own personality, which brings us to number 10. And that's a super big topic, which I don't think I can say in one second flat, but it's the idea of upgrading our personality. There are places where we need to improve in order to be the person who's equal to doing this arduous work. The work's arduous. And if we're not yet a good risk taker, or if we're not yet the passionate person we need to be, or if we're not yet X then we need to work on X separately from working on our novel. We need to turn ourselves into the person who can work on that novel. For that idea, I use the phrase of upgrading your personality. And as I say, we'd have a lot to say about that, but let me just (laughs) gloss over (laughs) it for this quick second. Like, for example, I'm a person that finishes things. I'm a person that is true to my word. That sort of thing. Well, let me spend... uh, a longer minute on this. In my view of personality, personality is made up of three components of uh, original personality, how we come into the world, because creatures come into the world already themselves. Puppies, kittens, kids, all creatures come into the world idiosyncratically. So there's original personality, then there's formed personality, who we stiffen into over time, the kind of recognizable person that everybody sees. And then there's what I call available personality. That's our remaining freedom to become the person we want to be. So when I talk about upgrading our personality, what I'm really saying is using our available personality, our remaining freedom to do some work on that stiffened personality, on that person who is kind of accreted over time. That's kind of a headline Mm. on that point. And just to hit 11 and 12, 11 is just doing all of the things we just talked about over time. That is all the ups and downs. There's a way in which, and I have to say this carefully because people will get the wrong idea, but there's a way in which the creative process mimics bipolar disorder. It isn't bipolar disorder because (laughs) I I don't believe in such labeling, but there's just a way in which we get enthusiastic about something and then we have to face it. And then, as Virginia Woolf said, then resignation sets in <laughs> and we, we start to sink as we have to deal with the actual work of that task, of that symphony or that novel or that film. And so there's this up and downness that is a regular feature of the creative life. And so we need good tactics and tools for dealing with that roller coaster ride that is the creative life. And then just to get to a last point, point 12, and that is to remember that creativity is just one of our life purposes. It's easy for a certain kind of creative person to to dump all of his life purpose energy into that one place, creativity, and then not care much about relationships or activism or service Mm. or other life purposes that might be equally valuable. That's why super productive creative folks, Van Gogh as one example, 
might still commit suicide even though they're turning out beautiful paintings because the rest of their life isn't working. So the, the last tip or secret is that you want your whole life to, not just your, getting your creative life to work is difficult enough, but we have the actually larger task of getting our whole life to work because if only the creative part is working, we're actually not going to be doing all that well. Such an important point. Yes. Oh my gosh. I think so many people over either over index for one piece or the other, either they don't do any creative work and don't consider themselves that type of person, or they maybe just go so down the rabbit hole that they have so much success yet they're the rest of their life is kind of in shambles. Um, so I just, I think that's such an important point. And then that's probably also why there's like this, I don't know, idea that if you are living a creative life and you've done well, that there's addiction that follows, um, likely because the rest of one's life is not balanced. So in the first year of a of creative person's great success, if they have great, great success, that's the most dangerous year of their lives because they're going to be gifted so many things, so much sex, so many drugs, all of that's going to be gifted in that successful year. And that's rather unbalancing. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. So, and, and also if you have not regulated your ego, then, you know, that, <laughs> that might also take you on a down, downhill spiral. Yes, indeed. I, yeah, I think that if we're not ready for success, I think it can be, um, you know, our pitfall eventually. So that's, that's such a powerful point. Thank you so much for bringing all of this up. And I know we spent most of the time talking about the 12 keys, which I think are so fantastic. I feel really inspired right now. I'm sure other folks will as well when they listen to this, but can we briefly talk about Kirism, uh, this philosophy that you've developed? I've just been interested and intrigued. So I'd love to touch on that point. Um, and then we'll have maybe one or two more questions. Yeah, it is it is hard probably to touch on it um, so briefly, but a lot of the ideas that I've had over the years I thought could hang together in a new contemporary philosophy of life that focused on the paradigm shifts that I mentioned before, the shift from the idea that there is a purpose to life to the idea of life purposes and life purpose choosing and also on the paradigm shift from the idea of seeking meaning to the idea of making meaning, that those two ideas and connected ideas of meaning investments and seizing meaning opportunities, that is that I could create a whole vocabulary and a way of looking at life that I think is both truer to life and useful to folks. So Again, I can't say too much in, in a moment, but if folks are interested in this, the book to go to is a book called Lighting the Way. It came out this past year, and in it, um, the, the various books of curism are described. So as I invite people, I suggest that folks take a look at that book if they want to learn more about this. Wonderful. And Eric, what sorts of things have surprised you in this journey since you've been coaching people for 30 years? I'm sure you have uh, some fascinating kind of reflections on this space. I think how difficult it is for folks. I'm not sure if I would say that surprised me, but I've been re-understanding the way in which all of these challenges manifest. And even if you do book X, 
that doesn't mean that book Y is necessarily any easier or that book Z is any easier. It feels to me, A, that these challenges do persist because they are embedded in the process. B, they are completely transcultural. I know that there are cultural differences. But if, I, if I'm working with somebody in, I don't know, Japan or Finland or, or Germany or Australia, anywhere around the world, Bolivia, it's the same issues around showing up to the work, tolerating process, dealing with mistakes and messes, all of that seems to be universal. So I can't say I'm exactly surprised by that, but the seeing of that is reinforced with each new client. Mm. Beautiful. And one thing I wanted to quickly touch on uh, before we wrap up is one thing I've noticed about you, Eric, is that you're such a generous person with your time. Um, you have been on many different uh panels, conferences, you have your own uh, coaching group that you, you work with other creative coaches. I'm, I'm just so fascinated by the, the work that you're doing because you obviously love it. You love helping people, uh, become more creative and find that creative, uh, life. And so I'd love to hear more about why you decided to pursue this path and, you know, why is it, why do you think it's so important? I'm not sure if I have a simple answer to that. Um, one part of the answer is that even when I was very young, five, six, seven, I thought that a lot of what I was hearing was humbug. I really did not believe in what adults were telling me, even as a very young child, uh, whether it was about religion. I grew up in, in an area that was both the, the main makeup of the part of Brooklyn I was in was either Orthodox Jewish or Orthodox Catholic. I didn't believe in it. I didn't, I didn't believe in that feature of it. Then later on, as I started to understand the, the mental health services industry, I really did not believe in the mental disorder paradigm that is the predominant paradigm. So I've had this activist, rebellious energy all along. That's a piece of it. Then Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is, uh, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. I've been devoted to this belief that people deeply love their creative energy, but they get really stuck in manifesting it. And since I know that, that that's a source or a place of love for folks, place of possible accomplishment, place of ego gratification. I want them to get there. I'm on this uh, one-person mission to help every person I meet manifest their potential. I think it comes from the same activist rebellious energy that the that 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 activism comes from. They're related somehow, but that's that's a piece of the puzzle. So fascinating. And Eric, can you tell me, has there a book person that has been deeply inspiring to you on this journey in order to get your, your ideas? Or do most of your creative ideas come from your own, like your own mind, your own, 
maybe it's like your subconscious. Like, do you, is it more of an internal process for you or are you constantly reading? Nowadays it is, but um, I'm steeped in the existential tradition, both the existential literature tradition and the existential philosophical tradition. So the writers I loved were the existential writers like ex- like Dostoevsky and Kafka, Camus, um, Orwell, Sartre. So um, I know that tradition well. I know the tradition of language analysis well. Um, those writers mattered to me. And there came a point really very early on. Sartre wrote an important essay in existential thinking where he talks about what exists sort of what existentialism is. And at the end of that essay, he says, and the next step for existentialism is X. But then no existentialist ever took that step. And when I read that essay, I knew that I wanted to move existentialism forward in the kinds of paradigm shifts that I was talking about earlier in actually describing what making meaning would look like or the difference between life purpose and life purposes. So the short answer is the existential tradition has been important to me. Now I don't go back to it anymore. I don't reread Dostoevsky, but I'm but I'm steeped in all of that and and that that's playing in my psyche somewhere. Fascinating. Wow, Eric. And are there any resources that you can point folks to in order to learn more about you, your work, how to potentially do some one-on-one coaching, which I know you offer, I believe. Where can they find you? Yeah. Uh, my website is the place. It's ericmazel.com, E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. That's the place to go. And yeah, there's lots to look at there. Wonderful. And you have a newsletter, which you can find uh, on the website. It's also just ericmazel.com uh, slash newsletter. Um and of course, you can check out all of his books on Amazon. Uh, it's amazing to even just check out the titles and to check out where you are in the creative process, because you'll probably find a book for wherever you are. <laughs> it's quite amazing. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for your time. This was just so enlightening and so inspiring for me, and I'm sure for our audience as well. And so I just can't thank you enough for the, taking the time to be here. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Eric. And for our audience, thanks for joining and for listening. In this episode, we learned about the 12 keys of creativity and how to live a creative life with Eric Maisel. And you can tune in to Gateways to Awakening, where we host one-on-one conversations with leading experts in wellness and spirituality. Thanks again.